Welcome to St. Alphonsus Wellcast, the podcast where we explore the many facets of health and well-being. This podcast is brought to you by St. Alphonsus Corporate Health and Well-Being and a generous grant from the St. Alphonsus Foundation. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. Welcome to the St. Alphonsus Wellcast. My name is Amy James. I'm a dietitian and health coach in the Corporate Health and Wellbeing Department. And today we've brought back Kim Cleveland, our resident nurse practitioner. Hi, Kim. Hello. And we have Candy, as always, our DJ in the back. Hello. <laughs> okay, so last time we chatted with you guys, we talked about supplements and we promised a at least one more episode, a series two, if you will, on some other things that we find interesting. And so that's exactly what we're bringing back today. And specifically, we are going to talk about collagen, probiotics, magnesium three and eight, and turmeric. I almost (laughs) forgot. (laughs) Um, And so I'm actually going to start it off with collagen. And so I actually want to ask you guys what you've heard about collagen because I mean, I feel like I hear about it all the freaking time from clients, Mm -hmm. from social media, from the internet. Um, And then in doing my research, I mean, you can just imagine like everything that I found. So I just want to hear what do you what have you guys heard about it? Candy, I know you have Okay, I'll start. Yeah, I specifically wanted this topic to be covered because exactly like you said, it's Mm -hmm. everywhere. Yeah. And people are selling it and there's bovine and there's marine and you can take it in these little gel packs, Mm -hmm. like all this stuff. And it's supposed to be. The holy grail of everything. The fountain of youth. The fountain of youth. And I'm a vegetarian, Mm -hmm. so I don't get a lot of this. And so then I was told, well, that I should take collagen because I'm not getting as many natural sources from it. Now, I am am a pescatarian, Mm -hmm. so I do eat fish. Um, And so they're like, try marine. So, but then they're like, oh, but marine isn't as good as bovine. So I just want to know, is does this even work? Is this something that is important? As a vegetarian, would it be something more important? And mm-hmm. what's the difference? Are we just all wasting our money? I have to say, for someone who doesn't have much collagen in their diet, your skin looks fantastic. <laughs> really, you. though, as I was also doing the research, because, okay, everybody listening, Candy was the one who said, let's do collagen. Yes, yes. I was like, this is the last person that needs collagen. <laughs> she has beautiful skin. <laughs> and as a complete disclaimer, I do take collagen. Okay. Okay. And... To be fair, like, I don't really know if it works. <laughs> Amy's going to have to go into the deep dive right. here. Right. I mean, I definitely have done my research about it, but I'm interested also in learning about the more recent evidence because I think it's important to yeah. know what we're taking and why we're taking it and what's the goal of taking it with any supplement that we're taking. True. Absolutely. True. Okay. Let's get into it. Okay. So if you are listening to us and you're like, what the heck is collagen? Um, I'm going to tell you. Okay. So collagen is actually one of the most abundant proteins in the body. It's found almost everywhere, bones, muscles, tendons, skin. Um, and essentially it gives these body parts, their elastic stretchy qualities. And it also helps make everything nice and resilient. So when we're young, our collagen formation under the skin looks like a very well-organized string of fibers Um, And then as we age, we incur damages from the sun or if we are a smoker or if we're highly stressed, anything like that. This highly organized, um, what do I want to say, looking, I'm thinking of a word, uh, structure 
yes. structure uh, kind of turns into looking like a not so organized maze. I always kind of think of it Ooh. like that, um, like a uh, one of those mesh colanders, you know, they use for like berries or something like yeah. that, or yeah, like yeah, a yeah. sifter, and then it turns into like a nasty fishing net, you know, where <laughs> things are true. sort of like stretched out oh. and all that, all under your skin. You can't see. Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> but the mazes become like more kind of distinct, and you, uh, you know, move these fibers a certain way so many times, and you get wrinkles in your skin. That's more specifically your skin. Um, uh, just so you guys know, there are also it's not just aging that promotes you know the the well organized structure into the unorganized structure or the maze like structure. Um, if you are someone that has excessive sun exposure, that's going to cause damage to the skin. If you're a smoker. If you consume excessive alcohol, if you kind of are slacking in the sleep department or even a lack of exercise, um, you can all impact the production of collagen pretty negatively. And so those are all pretty like, you know, oxidative stress, free radicals, those types of things we always want to avoid. And we kind of always are constantly talking about avoiding. But that's a way that you can affect the collagen production on top of the natural effects of aging. Um, Okay, so collagen in your diet. So collagen is really only found in animal foods. So think like meat and fish. So for our pescatarian Uh candy, you are lucky. Fish does have collagen. And I believe the marine collagen, they extract it from the skin of the fish. Yes, I think. I think, yeah. I think yep. that's what I saw on the back of a tube. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so essentially anything that's got connective tissue is going to be plentiful in collagen. But that doesn't mean that plant foods aren't important or superior or will aid in the process of developing collagen because they do. So things like um, vitamin C, zinc, biotin, which is a B vitamin. Um, don't ask me which one because I totally forget right now. I think it's B7. Someone fact check me on that. Yeah. Um, watch it's not. <laughs> um, anyway, these things all are really powerful antioxidants, which means that free radical um, damage that's done by the skin or done by smoking can all be uh, kind of like reversed by antioxidants. And so we want to make sure we're getting essentially what we always tell you guys, a really nice balanced diet. But predominantly those collagens are going to come from, the collagen uh, proteins are going to come from your, your animal-based foods. B7, you're right. I was right. Yes. Oh, gosh. I can think my education for that. Um, all right. So like Candy was saying, collagen has recently been regarded as the fountain of youth. So, it, I mean, it's been um, touted as the, you know, preserving skin integrity um, and just like an anti-aging powerhouse. So with so many proposed benefits, and there are many, um, it's no wonder that collagen supplements have been really highly sought out in recent years. And according to Google... Since 2014, the searches for collagen supplements have, like, triple, hundred, quadrupled, um, uh, just, like, you know, risen. Everyone's super invested in it and super curious and um, procuring them and purchasing them. Like, came over here. Um, (laughs) Okay, so speaking of supplements, so they first started showing up. So collagen first started showing up um, in, like, stores and, and whatnot in creams and topical solutions, which is... Funny, I guess I would say in a way, because one, collagen doesn't really exist on the surface of the skin, but more in the deeper layers. And two, collagen fibers are way too big to penetrate the the, the initial, the first layers of the skin to get in there. Oh. And so that's kind of a wash. Anything <laughs> that says like, oh, here's your, your cream, it's collagen got collagen in it, collagen, yeah, all that stuff. It's just scientifically not backed by 
science, not evidence-based, and it just doesn't do anything. You're just kind of putting collagen on top of your skin. So research doesn't really support that. Um, And actually, (laughs) a lot of research doesn't even support the peptides. And so if you're not familiar with what peptides are, like I said, collagen is a protein, but it's a pretty large one. Peptides are just smaller chains of proteins. And so you would think, oh, smaller. It's going to permeate the skin. These don't even really show in the research as permeating the skin. So like peptide cream, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Now, that being said, I don't know what the effectiveness of it is when you pair it with something like hyaluronic acid or something else. So there's all these exceptions. But just like a run-of-the-mill peptide cream, not a lot of research supporting the use of this. Yeah. Um, So on the other hand, Oral collagen supplements, um, these can be in pill or powder form or, again, in foods. Um, you might see them marketed as, like, hydrolyzed collagen or collagen peptides. There's that word again. And all that means is that these are the smaller molecules, shorter chains, so generally a little bit more easily digestible and absorbable. Um, you might also see them paired with other nutrients like vitamin C and zinc. Um, and, again, that's because these supplements have also kind of grown in their popularity popularity as far as like skin, hair, nail growth, all that good stuff, and their antioxidant properties. So what exactly does the research have to say about oral supplementation? So I will say this. This is like my my take, my take home, my takeaway. Um, most of the research that we see, I will say one, there needs to be more human studies. A lot of it is animal-based studies, which is not uncommon. We kind of see that a lot in nutrition research. Um, But most of it is targeted at skin health and joint health. Okay. So all the other very specific claims that collagen makes, I will say, can't really be backed by the research. But how it pertains to skin elasticity, um, there's actually a fair amount of research saying that it will increase skin elasticity. So there you go, Kim. Uh, <laughs> do anything for my skin <laughs> and um and uh as far as joint health goes the research says that it definitely can i guess i shouldn't say definitely you should never refer to research in absolutes that was bad on me um but it may improve joint mobility and relieve joint pain which is no surprise because about 60 percent of the cartilage that we find in our joints and on our bones is made up of collagen so that's actually really exciting. And I think, right. I mean, that in and of itself is enough reason for anybody. I mean, if I have clients come in who have joint pain and want to work out, I always recommend collagen. So um, anyway, cons for the research. So what's more concerning is that if, let's say, for, for our academics out there or for people who like to read research, I don't know who really likes to do that for <laughs> super fun for on this one yeah <laughs> um but you always want to make sure to look at the limitations of a study or their disclaimers or um if they have to disclose anything disclosures i guess is what i was trying to say um because most of these studies are funded by entities that would really benefit from a positive outcome right and that's unfortunate mm-hmm. um we also need to look a little bit more deeply into the specific claims that like vital proteins make Um, about it actually, you know, preserving youth. You know, what does that mean? Does this actually do that? We don't really know. Um, But like I said, it improves skin elasticity. So I think that's reason enough to go for it. Um, And then also kind of bottom line, we don't want anyone thinking that, you know, you can go out and sit in the sun for hours at a time and chain smoke and drink (laughs) excessive alcohol and do all the things. And then, oh, but here I have my collagen supplement, so I'm covered, you know. Um, We want to prioritize a healthy diet, prioritize a healthy lifestyle, and then, um, again, choose a supplement as a supplement to that and and, um, kind of enhance your 
uh, skin elasticity and joint health, uh, if you will. Um, So kind of like takeaway, bottom line, non-industry funded research with human models is lacking a little bit. But there also is nothing saying that supplementation is harmful. Um, I would say prioritize foods in your diet. I'm a dietitian, so of course I'm going to say food first. That's obviously my approach, and I think that that's been pretty apparent in all of our episodes. <laughs> um, and so I will tell you guys my favorite way to ensure that I get my collagen um, is I make homemade bone broth, and I think that's a really popular one. So I just get some grass-fed beef bones from the co-op here in town, and I um, put them in my Instant Pot for three hours, and any of like the aromatics I want. So like onion, garlic, peppercorns, that's usually my go-to. Um, and that's how I get that. And I think I look it? fabulous. You, like, <laughs> do. you do look <laughs> fantastic. Um, but, but yeah, bottom line, I mean, Hey, I think Kim, what's your takeaway from having the supplements? Like, what do you say? Yeah. You know, I think, um, primarily my reason for taking it is definitely like skin health, elasticity, Um, and I've always been really intrigued by it since, you know, I've been taking it for a really long time. And, um, the reason is, is because I read a lot of studies about wound healing and collagen, and this was sort of predating a lot of the scientific research on just skin elasticity and Mm -hmm. youthfulness. So, um, there's really good data for wound healing and collagen supplementation. And then, um, also for some like certain biomarkers like pre-albumin, which is a protein in the blood and things like that for a lot of like elderly people who maybe are suffering from like pressure sore, pressure sores or other wounds that aren't healing. And so there's like a lot yeah. of decent research surrounding those kinds of things. And um, I agree, like it's a source, it's an incomplete protein source, but mm-hmm. it does have, contain some protein. It does so. have amino acids. Yes. Yes. So when I was also a pescatarian, I started taking it because I was thought, you know, I could get some protein along with, um, yeah. along with the collagen source too. Um, yeah. And then, you know, personally, um, I take a marine collagen. Um, it's a little more bioavailable and a little bit easier absorbed. It tends to be a little bit higher quality than some of the bovine sources. Oh, interesting. I didn't know that. Not to not to say that all the bovine sources are not as you know aren't as good or right. are good at all, but um, the marine sources tend to be a little bit more absorbed by humans because it more closely resembles our collagen, believe it or not. <laughs> Interesting. So. I will also, you mentioned the amino acids and I'll say this. Um, so you guys know that I'm pregnant 37 weeks today. Um, I think I've mentioned it a couple times in some of the episodes. Uh, but glycine, that specific amino acid, when you get pregnant becomes essential. Um, so it's typically an amino acid that you make yourself and so that you don't, I mean, you want to get it in the diet, like you want to get everything in the diet, but when you're pregnant, it becomes essential or as in your body can't really keep up with the need. And so, um, they say bone broth is actually really important and the collagen and the glycine and all that good stuff that you find in it, um, for pregnant women. Look at that. Interesting. So maybe there is some good to this collagen. I think so. I'm not, you know, I think dietitians get a rap for for kind of being anti-supplementation and and I don't I don't think I totally fall into that category, but I also don't hate collagen. I mm-hmm. I'm after doing the research, I'm kind of interested. So, I mean, but like I said, I do my bone right. broth pretty religiously, so there you go. Right, right. And that's quite a bit cheaper than some of these supplementations oh, are. Oh, goodness. So. Yes. The <laughs> yeah. cost aspect, which we haven't even touched on for any of these. Right. But yeah, definitely. So something Alrighty, you don't awesome. need but might confer some benefit. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yes. Um, okay, so moving on. Let's go to probiotics. I'm excited for this one, Kim. Yes. Ooh. Take it away. Well, Another hopefully- good one. <laughs> <laughs> hopefully I can do it justice. 
Um, so we had our gut health episode um, yes. with our one of our local gastroenterologists a while ago, and he touched on this a little bit. And um, my opinion is sort of, um, or my my synthesis of the research, not my opinion. <laughs> hey, opinion plays a part here. Yeah, yeah so. it definitely does. Yeah. It definitely um, kind of sort of coincides with his. So there's two different things that you may hear out there in terms of gut health, and you'll be hearing about probiotics and prebiotics. And I think it's important to sort of differentiate between the two, first yep. of all, because they're very different things. Mm-hmm. Um, so prebiotics are mostly going to be high-fiber foods that feed the bacteria that live in your gut. So the bacteria that already are there, there are certain things that are, quote, prebiotic in nature, meaning that they can feed those bacteria and help them grow and sustain themselves. And then there's probiotics, which are actual, like, isolated microorganisms that are typically encapsulated or found in liquid form that you can then take um, as a supplement in order to supplement the bacteria that are already living in your gut. Mm -hmm. And... I think there are certain applications for this that can be really great for a lot of things. Again, it's another um, type of supplement that has a claim for everything. <laughs> you know, it'll right. help your skin. It'll help eczema. It'll help your gut health. It'll help your, you know, your stools. It'll help acid reflux. There's there's all sorts of claims in terms of what probiotics will help with. And it seems that there are certain things that it might be helpful for and other things that it's not so helpful for. Um, I think things that looking through the research, we can start with what it's not so helpful for. And I wouldn't take a probiotic on a daily basis indefinitely. Um, The way that your GI tract works, it's just really not going to maintain a population in your gut for any sustained period of time and likely isn't going to be that helpful. So people who just have their daily vitamins, then they throw that probiotic in there every day. It's probably not going to be something useful. So the concerns that I have also in terms of probiotic use are shelf stability, the type of doses people will be taking and all that. So it kind of takes a lot to keep some of those microorganisms alive. And so a lot of times they have to be like refrigerated or they'll expire after a certain amount of time. And so you want to keep all of those things in mind when you're thinking about taking a probiotic. Mm If you look through the World Gastroenterology Organization and their position statement in terms of specific bacteria that may be helpful in certain conditions, you're going to find that there are certain conditions that may respond to a certain strain of probiotic. So you may see like lactobacillus Uh or acidophilus or all these different bacteria strains out there, and you can't just like pick one off the shelf and Mm -hmm. decide that's the one for you. There are certain ones that may be helpful for certain conditions, So in general, you know, when you think about like what you might want to take it for, there are certain strains that have been shown to be helpful in people with eczema. There are certain strains that have been found to be helpful for people who have antibiotic-associated diarrhea. So if for some reason you end up on an antibiotic, taking a probiotic might be helpful in terms of managing any diarrhea or GI symptoms that happen as a result of depleting some of your normal gut um, bacteria. And then there are some certain bacteria that can be helpful too for like eradicating infections such as like H. pylori or um, C. diff, clostridium difficile diarrhea. So just different indications for different strains. And so I would say in general, I wouldn't recommend just picking one off the shelf. I would try to talk to your provider about what type might be useful for whatever condition you're having or if it's an appropriate um, supplement for you to take. Right. Definitely. What do you think, Amy? Hmm. Uh, uh, well, one, I would, I mean, okay, I sound like a broken record, but I really think that 
I, I think it's much more sustainable to have foods that have naturally occurring probiotics in them. Um, so like Greek yogurt or kefir or kimchi or miso, things like that in your diet as a staple. And I think that that is actually in the research now showing to sustain that population Definitely. of good bacteria in your gut more readily um, than taking a supplement every day. Um, and again, this goes back to bioavailability. Food form is just going to be more bioavailable. So I think that. Um, but I also know that most of our gut microbiome is made up in our adolescence, and it's really hard to change. Um, and you can kind of, like like you said, and also you can only see that lasting benefit of a probiotic supplementation as long as you're taking it and as long as it's effective. Mm-hmm. And so um, I think there are so many other things that you can do also in the way of, of changing your mu- your gut microbiome. As far as like stress management, limiting, you know, your exposure to free radicals, which I know, again, broken record, Um, uh, stress management and uh, because, you know, the gut brain access, the relationship between your your brain and your and your and your gut is (laughs) is huge. Right. And there's so much more research coming out on that, too. And so I think um, a lot of times when we talk about supplements, we have this kind of like like gut reaction to be like, oh, this will fix it like this, almost kind of like a band aid. Um, And so. You know, whether it's antibiotic, uh, that's the root cause of, of gut dysbiosis or um, any of the other things that cause gut dysbiosis. I think getting to the root cause of that and then using um, food first and then supplement is, is kind of my opinion on that. A hundred percent. I think in terms of things that are going to be problematic for your gut microbiome, you're absolutely right. Like all of these free radical, you know, inflammation causing things like right. sugary foods, processed yeah. foods alcohol use just sort of like wipes out a lot of the good Mm -hmm. bacteria in your gut. All those things are things that are really important. And then prioritizing high fiber, whole plant foods. So lots of fruits, vegetables, nuts, legumes, grains, Mm -hmm. if those are things you can tolerate in your diet are all really important things that can feed that naturally occurring good bacteria in your gut. Those fermentable fibers. Yeah. And those fermented foods, they now recommend, you know, five servings a day if you can manage it, which honestly, that sounds like (laughs) a lot. That sounds like a lot. But if you're trying to like repopulate certain bacteria in your gut, it's actually only like one tablespoon of kimchi is considered a serving. So you think about it, you know, it's actually... They're Can pretty you less explain to our listeners that might not know mm-hmm. what is kimchi? Oh yeah, so you're thinking like <laughs> sauerkraut. Kimchi is go. sort of like a, an Asian type of sauerkraut. Um, it's it's a little tangy, kind of spicy sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you're also looking at other fermented foods like. You know, you can ferment pretty much any vegetable. Yep. Right. Um, you know, I mean, you ferment even like carrots pickles and, to a yeah, certain pickles extent. Yeah, pickles. We'll have some if they're fermented pickles. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Sauerkraut. Mm-hmm. The kefir. That's like the, that's one that I feel like is really popular right now. It's mm-hmm. like a drinkable yogurt. Yeah. Um, that's really good. And Greek yogurt, miso. What else? Oh, there's, I mean, there's so much on the market now too because everyone's. So fermented, good. Yes. Yes, in general. In general. (laughs) But I will say this, as you, um, and this is the risk with introducing probiotics as well, is that you might experience a little bit of like GI discomfort at first, maybe some like bloating or gas or a little bit of change in your bowel habits or maybe even like a change in smell, which I, you know, sorry, dietitian here. I I, I feel totally (laughs) comfortable talking about it, but I know you guys might not want to hear about it. Um, But that can be pretty normal. And as long as it kind of everything goes back to, to normal and you know, right. I don't even know a time, like a week or so. 
uh, then you should be fine. So really, this isn't like a long-term thing. This isn't something you don't need to, at least with supplementation. If you do do it, it might be for a reason. Do some research. Talk to your provider to see what strain might be helpful so mm-hmm. for a certain period of time. Mm-hmm. And beyond that, just trying to incorporate into your diet other foods that are fermented, um, like the kefir mm-hmm. and the kimchi and what else? Would we sauerkraut. Have? And sauerkraut and stuff <laughs> like that. Okay. Yeah. Okay. All righty. Okay, so I think another one where it's like, yeah, do it if you, you know. If you want. Yeah. It's not, and I don't think it's, it would be terribly harmful either. Um, okay, let's move on to another one. So I'm going to talk to you guys about magnesium, but specifically magnesium 3 and 8. And the reason I chose this one is because this one has recently been brought up in terms of improving sleep outcomes. And so I know um, that, uh, you know, sleep issues, problems with sleep architecture, falling asleep, staying asleep, X, Y, Z, has become pretty um, pervasive in in society right now. And we could really do a whole other podcast on that. Um, And we will eventually. We will. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But anyway, let's just start talking about um, magnesium before we get into the three and eight parts. So um, magnesium is a very, very important nutrient. um, And unfortunately, we know a lot of Americans are lacking in it. And it's because it literally comes from all of the plentiful, colorful fruits and vegetables and uh, nice animal-based foods uh, and not our processed foods. Um, So the recommended dietary allowance, so the RDA for adults 19 to 51 years is anywhere from about 300 to 420 milligrams, depending on if you're female, male, um, and uh, pregnancy, adolescence, all those other things kind of affect what that RDA is. But for 19 to 51, 3 to 420 is 300 to 420, excuse me. Um, Okay, so what exactly does magnesium do in the body? I mean, it's a part of like 300 processes in your body. So just to name a few, maintaining a healthy immune system, regulating your muscle and nerve function. Um, It helps make sure your blood pressure stays nice and stable, keeps your bones strong. Um, It can even help manage your blood sugar levels. And it is needed for protein and energy production. So um, where is it found in the diet? So like I said, I feel like you can find it almost anywhere, which is kind of amazing because we really are very deficient in it. Um, but a lot of plant foods. So if you're eating the rainbow, you can almost guarantee um, that you've got some magnesium in there. But then also things like salmon, beef, poultry, um, yogurt, uh, brown rice, uh, a white potato with the skin, if we want to get specific. Um, that's all going to contain magnesium. So again, we're looking for balance. We're looking for variety to ensure that you've got that um, that magnesium in there. So while we say most Americans aren't getting enough, I mean, it's like it's not likely that anyone's going to experience such a, a magnesium deficiency while they'll start manifesting symptoms of magnesium deficiency. A true deficiency like that would occur with a more longer-term low-magnesium diet if they had some malabsorption issues or if they had large losses from alcohol abuse or medications, which that can definitely happen. Um, if you find yourselves in one of these categories, if you ever have symptoms like Muscle cramps, numbness or tingling in your skin, vomiting, nausea, poor appetite, weakness, fatigue, or in some severe cases, seizures or an abnormal heart rate. (laughs) Might want to seek medical attention and absolutely seek a a supplement. (laughs) Um, And then just a couple other things. So I think magnesium on the market right now has been uh, looked at to 
I mean, to heal or be a solution for a lot of things. Um, so you might, so a lot of it is, uh, you see like magnesium citrate, magnesium threonate, magnesium, you know, like tons of different kinds. And you're like, well, what is this for? Right. I'm going to get into that a little bit. But um, you might have seen magnesium sold for its laxative properties. And that's because magnesium hydroxide at high enough levels actually does produce a pretty uh, intense laxative <laughs> effect. <laughs> um, and so that can be helpful if you're if you're a little backed up, a little constipated. Um, and that is an important thing to, to kind of hold on to as we talk about its use in sleep. Um, but then it's also correlated with reducing like leg and foot cramps. It can help with restless leg syndrome, which if you have ever experienced that is a freaking curse. Yes. Oh my gosh, it's terrible. <laughs> um, and then, I mean, it also has been um, correlated with reduced symptoms of anxiety and depression. And then of course, help with sleep. So let's get into that a little bit right now. So we don't really know, I mean, Again, I'm just sounding like a broken record. No one knows the exact mechanism, and I don't even know if something has been proposed yet as to why magnesium seems to help with improving sleep. But what we do know is that when we look at people who are magnesium deficient, that their sleep is almost always reported as impacted negatively. Okay. Now, I'm not sure kind of like what came first, the chicken or the egg, right. you know, if that happened. But there seems to be a pretty high correlation between negative sleep outcomes and um, poor magnesium status. And so, um, unfortunately, not a lot of research <laughs> that supports the use of magnesium 3 and 8 specifically in sleep, but uh, there was a study of elderly patients with insomnia who took 500 milligrams of magnesium daily for eight weeks, and um, what they saw was in many of the subjects, so I'm kind of using some like lay terms here, um, but they saw some improvement in subjective and objective measures of insomnia. So they saw things like these participants fell asleep faster and slept longer. Uh, they increased their sleep efficiency, so that means that they spent more time sleeping while they were in bed um, and not so much time sleeping in other places. So that's what that means. Um, they woke up later and reduced early morning awakening, which is a problem in our elderly population. Right. Um, they experienced increased concentrations of melatonin, so that's our only sleep hormone that we produce. Um, and then they experience decreased concentrations of serum cortisol, and that's our stress hormone, which can greatly interfere with our sleep hygiene or our sleep architecture. So promising, but mm -hmm. that's really kind of the only thing that I found. So kind of like my wrap up here. So why magnesium three and eight? This is a question that I had. Um, and so all of these different types of magnesium, I'm kind of like when I go through the supplement aisle, because I go there for fun and I look at everything. Um, <laughs> this is a, a chelate. Do you say chelate or ch chelate? I say chelate. I say chelate too. Okay. So this is a chelate of magnesium, which essentially means that they've taken magnesium and they've bound it to another molecule to make it more absorbable and stable. Oh, I so, said chelate. I've heard it both ways, but I've always said chelate. And I was like, you know, I'm going to ask that. That sounds better, though. I yeah. got better. Um, so in this case, uh, magnesium is chelated or chelated, whatever you guys want to say. Um, it's bonded to threonic acid. And so that's why it's called magnesium l 3 8 So this was developed and patented by researchers, researchers at MIT. And the reason they bonded it to this is because they see that it's more absorbable by our brain. And that's where it can do its work to improve sleep. And that's where we see other outcomes such as like improved cognitive function or reduced symptoms of anxiety and depression. And while, of course, you guys know our tagline, more research needed, um, there are some promising anecdotal data out there. Okay. 
So, um, and so I think kind of what I'll say my last what I'll, my last takeaway is I think we all know somebody who takes melatonin, right? Oh, or yeah. we all know somebody who's <laughs> prescribed something like a trazodone mm-hmm. uh, for sleep health or to help them fall asleep and stay asleep. Like it's pretty rampant. Um, it's pretty common. And so my stance on it is uh, the recommendation, which I, um, I'm not going to lie, I got this from the Huberman podcast, uh, is to supplement 145 grams 30 to 60 minutes prior to sleep. Um, and he cited research, so okay. I, and I, I looked it up, so that is legitimate. Um, however, not a robust amount of data to support its use in curing sleep problems, but I think my opinion is... In contrast to chronic melatonin use or seeking a doctor to get something prescribed, I would much prefer a client of mine to try a, you know, you can even try every other day, 145 milligrams of magnesium 3 and 8 to see if it will help your um, uh, sleep habits because these, um, this amount, 145 grams, is, you know, generally regarded as safe and it's not really going to do much to you. Again, most of Americans are lacking in magnesium. Um, and in contrast to melatonin and prescription drugs, I believe this is favorable, um, or more favorable, but talk to your doctor first. Yes. Yeah. And that's what I'll say about that. <laughs> uh, great. That was good. Thanks. Any questions? It was good coverage of it. Yeah. So now chelated, chelated. Yeah. I don't <laughs> that was my take That's home. the question. Right? right? If, yeah. if that's what you guys took, I'm happy. <laughs> <laughs> and if somebody knows, well, then please put it in the comments. I think right. I really like what you said though, too, in terms of sleep. You know, having been a prescriber and prescribed a lot of different medications, sedative, hypnotic type medications Mm -hmm. to assist people in falling asleep, we know that the sleep type that people are getting and the actual amount of sleep that they're getting when they're under these, the influence of these medications is not as good quality of sleep. And so, you know, I think that if you can get to sleep and stay to sleep with a supplement like magnesium, I think that's a really, again, more favorable yeah, um, thing to take. Yeah, I do too. And I mean, I have, I like I said, I I have family members who take things. Uh, like I have a family member who takes trazodone, and I know what that when they run out, if they can't get it, you know, it's like panic mode. Oh, I'm not going to sleep tonight. You know, right. so and I know that a lot of people also take melatonin inappropriately. Like they say now, melatonin should only be used kind of sparingly, or once every few days, or to kind of like get on top of a. Um, uh, what happens when you travel? Jet lag. Jet lag. <laughs> uh, something like that. And yeah. so, yeah, I think this would be a nice, uh, more holistic way around that. I like that. All right. So I'm going to give a quick synopsis of turmeric now. Um, so turmeric is an interesting one. I like the idea of turmeric for a lot of reasons, mostly in my cooking. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it is also a really potent anti-inflammatory. Um, it's from the curcumin plant, which is in the ginger family. Mm-hmm. And people um, have been using turmeric for millennia, thousands yes. of years in terms of health and flavor and um, incorporating it into their foods. And this is kind of a cool one, too, because this is a food source. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you can take it encapsulated, which um, is what most of the studies are on more recently. Um, but you can incorporate it into your cooking as well and get, you know, some really beneficial effects as well. Um, 
you may not get quite as much as you would in an encapsulated form if you incorporate it into a curry or some other soup or something like that. But you'd still be getting, you know, some beneficial polyphenols and antioxidants. So um, the proposed idea of taking turmeric is that it's an anti-inflammatory. And so it's been studied a lot in rheumatologic conditions like um, autoimmune type conditions that tend to be very inflammatory in nature. And then also in like osteoarthritis and things too. There are some other claims too that it's good for heart health and bone health and other things. But in general, you can just think of it as a really potent anti-inflammatory mm-hmm. compound. Um, most of the time when it's taken in encapsulated form, it's combined with another um food nutrient. So usually with black peppercorn because it increases its bioavailability. So you may find that some I, know, I know. So you may find that some of the products where you take turmeric, it also has like a little bit of black peppercorn or some other okay. spice in there that'll that'll help absorb it a little bit better. Um, but there are some really promising studies for this, particularly in osteoarthritis and rheumatologic conditions. They found that for some conditions and some smaller studies, so there's limitations there. Taking um, three times a day turmeric is about the same in terms of pain relief in osteoarthritis patients as taking 1,200 milligrams of ibuprofen. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. That's incredible. Yeah. And so you can think about that. um, 1,200 milligrams is about the equivalent of taking two pills three times in a day. So two 200 milligram tablets three times. So oftentimes people with osteoarthritis, if their guts and kidneys can tolerate it, are going to be on much higher doses of um, NSAIDs or ibuprofen, things like that. But um, it can provide, you know, a significant amount of pain relief in certain patients. And the proposed mechanism is that it's like such a potent anti-inflammatory. Then again, there's some small studies too in lupus patients, um, which is an autoimmune condition or very inflammatory in nature, that it can be helpful as an adjunctive therapy. One thing to note that it is an anti-inflammatory agent, and people can have some GI effects related to that. Um, you know, sort of maybe counterintuitive, reflux. but yeah, exactly. Some people can get a lot of reflux from yeah. turmeric, some um, diarrhea, things like that, and also um, it can interact in your body in the same way as like an NSAID would for some people. So if you didn't already know this, NSAIDs like ibuprofen or Aleve or Advil um, can impact your bleeding. And so you may not be as readily able to stop bleeding or to create scabs and things like that. So, um, you know, you may want you're going to want to talk to your healthcare provider and see if it's appropriate for you. So you may not want to combine things like ibuprofen or Aleve with turmeric or combine it with a blood thinner if you're taking a blood thinner for any other reason. Um, unfortunately, a lot of people who do have conditions that would yield themselves to taking turmeric may also have another comorbidity that may make mm-hmm. turmeric not an appropriate choice for them. So mm-hmm. it's really important to talk to your healthcare provider. Um, I think for people who do suffer from inflammatory conditions, it can be a really helpful adjunctive therapy or mm-hmm. something that can help with pain management and inflammation. And I think for the general population, maybe don't go seeking out an encapsulated form, but sure. incorporating it into your cooking or yeah, um, trying right. to make like a curry once a week or something like that can be a really great way um, to incorporate it into your diet and get some of those anti-inflammatory properties. And ruin all your Tupperware. Yeah. <laughs> you know how I like to take it is I have like a ginger turmeric tea. Yes. Yes. And so every once in a while, I've really gotten into teas in yeah. the last couple of years. Um, and... 
that's nice. Although I do have some issues with acid reflux sometimes with it. Uh-huh. So I drink it like sparingly, but like in my rotation of teas, I like to have that combination. Look yeah. at that though, because I bet there's black peppercorn in it too. I'm going to look now. <laughs> I'm going to look. Um, all right. So I think that wraps up uh, series number two on our supplements uh, podcast episodes. And so we may or may not be back with another one. I don't know if we've decided. So tune in and listen and we will catch you guys next time. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for listening to this episode of St. Alphonsus Wellcast brought to you by St. Alphonsus Corporate Health and Wellbeing and the St. Alphonsus Foundation. Always be sure to catch new episodes by subscribing to us through all major podcast platforms, including Apple, Google, and Spotify. We hope you'll tune in again. Until then, be well.